The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. This morning, we're going to continue in our study of Galatians, and as we, as we jump into it, I want to just remind you, in, uh, in your bulletin insert, there's a pink insert that will, will tell you of some of the outline of today that we're looking at, and I just want to recap some of the things that we studied last week as we talked about what Paul is addressing in the Galatian church. And we identified it as legalism. And a legalist is, we defined as, as someone who keeps a legal list. This list of things, this do's and don'ts, this way that they need to continue to maintain in order to be acceptable to God. And Paul was addressing that in the churches in Galatia because there were many there that were saying to the, to the non-Jewish people coming to Christ, that they essentially had to become Jewish in order to become Christian. They had to observe Sabbath laws. They had to be circumcised and so on. And there were dietary restrictions that were placed on them. And uh, Paul was saying, this, this cannot be. And so as we talked last week about legalism, and we identified the fact that some of us who are, are of, of the generation of 50s and, and 60s and older, will identify with things like don't dance, don't drink, don't play cards, don't whatever. But the younger generation, which is called the millennial group, you know, people's in their 20s and 30s, they're, they're not going to identify with. They're going to say, I don't even think I'm reading the same Bible as you. And so we identified maybe there's some other things there. And so what I did was, and you'll see this in your insert, is there's four, four characteristics that I identified that perhaps identify or accompany any kind of legalism. And the first one there is that there is a tendency to focus on the externals rather than on the internal and on the heart. And if your faith is more like that, if your faith is more of an external thing of what you do instead of the internal heart, then you might be a legalist. The second part is that it's focused on your performance in those doing of external things instead of on Christ's payment and what He has done. And if you have a faith that, that is, is really focused on you in your performance, whether you read the Bible regularly and go to church and give to the poor and whatever else, you know, uh, if you're focused on you more than on Jesus, you might be really struggling with OCD, you know, obsessive Christianity disorder. You know, you, you're struggling with something that is, is not just the grace of God that says you are right before the Lord because of grace, because of what Jesus did. It doesn't have to have your performance. Your performance comes in response to grace. The third thing we talked about that morning and last morning was as well that it's instead of a, a relationship with Jesus focused, it's, it's a list of rules. Legalists have their legal lists. And it's not about the relationship. I, I know that I can be this way so much because I can do my Bible study, my Bible reading, my prayer time, and so on, and I can feel like I'm in a hurry because there's so many things on my list of things to do that day, and I can leave my chair and my coffee and get up and go out the door, and I have not had a heart relationship with Jesus, possibly, but I've checked the box. I'm keeping up to my, my schedule, my performance. 
That's legalism. And then finally, the, the, the characteristic that accompanies any kind of legalism that, that the Bible just really addresses is it leads to and keeps us in bondage instead of us leading out of it into freedom. Freedom. And the key verse of this entire series on Galatians is chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not let yourselves be yoked again with a, a yoke of slavery. You know, what's at stake in Galatians is not only the internal attitude of the church, but the external view of what the church is all about. That was what was at stake in Galatians. What are the believers inside the church going to live like? Are they going to live like it's just any other religion that has a whole bunch of do's and don'ts and they've got to just perform? Or is it about the grace of God that frees them to live in relationship to Jesus? And from the outside, looking into the church, is the church all about this group of people that are really anal retentive and, and, and paranoid and have to live up to certain expectations? And I shared that last week. I shared with you that I began my Christian journey too legalistic. I shared you the story about my brother and I. And you see, that's not the way we want to be known. Yesterday when we were, I was teaching with the premarital group, and uh, I shared with them the scripture from Moses, where Moses is, is up the mountain, he comes down because God has said, hey, you're, the people have gone crazy under Aaron, They're, they've made this golden calf, they're doing crazy things, and, and God wants to discipline his people and, and punish them and so on. Moses intercedes, picture of Christ interceding for us. And he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. That's what Moses says to God. And then he says, what else will distinguish us from all the rest of the peoples on this earth? Now I want to ask you, what is it that distinguishes you as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, what is it that distinguishes you from all the rest of the people that are in your life that are not followers of Christ? And I, for one, early in my Christian life, though I still struggle with legalism, I'm a recovering legalist, though I still struggle, but early in my Christian life, I determined that I do not want the thing that distinguishes me from all the rest of my non-Christian family or friends to be a whole bunch of rules that I seem to keep and they don't because it has nothing to do with the grace of God which is in Christ Jesus. I don't want to be known that way. I don't want our church to be known that way because that's not the way Christ wanted himself to be known and that's what was at stake when Paul writes Galatians and that's why he begins the letter angry because they have so quickly fallen from that very pure gospel of grace that they began with. <clears throat> Legalism leads us to make God a bystander. Because we don't need God when we're legalists. We do what we need to do to feel like we're acceptable to God, and God, God's not even needed. It's not even faith is not even needed because we depend on ourselves more than we depend on God. And God, we put him in a box. We, we say, this is the God box, and here's the rules I need to keep in order to you know, keep that box satisfied. And so, 
the Pharisees were like that. The Judaizers in the Galatian church were like that. And uh, that's not the way God wants us to be. Now, you might say, well, I'm not like that because I'm not living according to the Old Testament laws of Moses. That's not me. I mean, I'm not into that Sabbath thing and the dietary things and all that. Okay. But you might have substituted that with some other guardrails in your life. And you think to yourself that as long as you're inside those principles or rules that you think are what God is acceptable with, as long as you're not pressed against the guardrails too tight, you're going to be fine. But see, God doesn't want us pressed against the guardrails, whatever rules of life we might. He wants us in the, in the highway of life, walking in relationship with Him by faith, where He takes us further into maturity. Because legalism in the Christian's life can look nothing more like managing your sin and not really getting rid of it. And so let's take our Bibles and continue in this morning to look at the Scripture. And I'm going to just read to you a few verses from chapter 2 in Galatians. And uh, we're going to see in the Scripture today that Paul, Paul made a, a trip to Jerusalem, and, and we're going to look at what, what he took to Jerusalem. We're going to look at what he brought home from Jerusalem. And then we're going to look at what happened in Antioch when he had to confront uh, Peter, that pillar of the church. And so I'm just going to read to you and with you the, 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 the last part, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And if you're able to stand with me, would you do that now and listen to God's Word? <clears throat> Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, like, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? May God bless his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you keep your Bibles open, I just want to draw your attention back to chapter 2, verse 1, where after 14 years after being converted, Paul finally makes a trip to Jerusalem. Now, he had gone once before for two weeks just to meet Peter and James an elder in the church in Jerusalem, but, but it says that after 14 years, he went to Jerusalem, and uh, he, up until that time, he had been preaching in Syria and Cilicia, where, where there were mostly Gentile, non-Jewish churches being planted, and uh, he went now because he had to see if his message that he'd been preaching for 14 years aligned with what the apostles in Jerusalem were preaching, Peter, James, and John, and so on. In other words, was it, was it consistent? And he says, I hope I had not run in vain. I hope that all this was not in vain, that I actually wasn't really preaching what they were preaching. And so he goes and, and he asks himself as he goes, are they going to accept the gospel that I'm preaching? And so the first thing that he takes to Jerusalem that I want to identify is he takes the truth of the gospel that changed his life, and then he turned around and started preaching it to everybody else, and it started changing their lives as well. 
I remember it was the gospel of grace. I remember hearing about Charles Spurgeon that somebody came up to him one day and said, Charles Spurgeon, what, what part do you have in your salvation and what part did God have in, his, in your salvation? And, and Charles Spurgeon said, well, my, my part in salvation was running and God's part was chasing me down. That's the way he saw it. And that's so much like the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, before he became a Christian, he was, he was persecuting the church. He was dragging them out of the synagogues and taking them to the Sanhedrin, and they were, they were being put in prison because of Saul of Tarsus. And, all, and, he, and he was so opposed, and, and God grabbed a hold of him, met him on that road. And Spurgeon, let me just read a bit more of Spurgeon this morning, just, just to hear what, what his experience of this gospel of grace that rescued him. He said, I knew I could not keep myself. Think about that. He said, Spurgeon said, I knew I could not keep myself. He means keep himself on the righteous path. And he said, but if Christ promised to keep me, if Christ promised to keep me, I should be safe forever. Whatever good resolutions I might make, the possibilities were that they would be good for nothing when temptation assailed me. I might be like those of whom it is said that they see the devil's hook, the fishing analogy. They see the devil's hook and they cannot help but nibbling at its bait. But that I should be morally disgracing myself as some have done and I've heard of would be a hazard from the very thought of which I shrunk with horror. The thought that I might start the journey, he says, to heaven, but fail to complete it terrified me. So here is Spurgeon, and he's in the middle of this wrestling with understanding that he knew within himself he did not have what it took to live the Christian life. And he realized, but if Christ takes me on, if Christ promises to do it with me and in me and through me and as me, then I'm safe. So it's not surprising that later on he wrote a book. And guess what the book is called? All of Grace. All of Grace. That's what Paul preached and believed. So Paul took to Jerusalem, first of all, the message of the truth of the gospel of grace, that Jesus Christ rescues helpless sinners. The second thing he took is the companions of the gospel. He took two men with him. One was Barnabas, who was a Jewish man. You remember Barnabas. He was, he was the one that went on the first missionary journey with Paul and planted the churches that were in Galatia that he's writing now. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and, and he took him along, and also a Gentile convert, a man that was non-Jewish, uncircumcised. His name was Titus. And he took him along almost as bait to see how will they treat Titus. And he says in chapter 2, early in the chapter, he says, and, and they did not even force him to be circumcised. Again, just testing the apostles in Jerusalem had the Judaizers, the false teachers that were saying you had to become like a Jew before you could become a Christian, had they so influenced the apostles that, that now their gospel is corrupted. And they, he, he said with joy, they didn't force Titus 
to become circumcised. And so Paul, Paul's happy with this. Paul is rejoicing. He has taken to Jerusalem the truth of the gospel, of grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, and he has taken with him companions, the Jewish extreme, the Gentile extreme. Is this gospel good for both? Can they be one church? Are there going to be two churches starting in the early church? And the third thing that he took to Jerusalem was the mission of the gospel that he was called to, which was the Gentile world, all non-Jewish people groups. Just as Peter had been called to the, 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 the Jewish church, mostly in Jerusalem and Judea and so on, Paul says, I've been called to the people that are not Jewish. And will we unite together as one church, or is there going to be two? And so Paul went with three non-negotiables. He went with the non-negotiable of the truth of the gospel of grace. He went with the non-negotiable that if you don't accept my friends that are Gentiles without making them through, jump through a bunch of hoops, I can't, I can't walk with you. And he went thirdly with this focus that the gospel of God is for all ethnos, all ethnic groups. Go therefore and make disciples of all these people, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so here we see Paul go with these three, three things. Let's see if he comes home with them. Verse 6 of chapter 2. It says that at the end of this, this Paul says, they added nothing to my message. So first of all, praise the Lord, the truth of the gospel that Paul was preaching, they added nothing to it. There was no additives. It was, it was good. They were preaching the same message of grace. They, they realized that God shows no partiality, and, and so no additives. They depended on Christ's finished work and his ongoing work of, of intercession and his future work of redemption when he returns. And so they could trust in him. That was the Christ-exalting, Christ-saturated message that the early church began with. And Paul was so zealous for that message to be true and, and, and maintained that if for some reason when he went to Jerusalem they weren't preaching that, he would have washed his hands of them and started his own church. Now there are some things we need to be divided over. And there are some things we must not be divided over. Paul was at a stage in the life of the early church when this, if this divides us, then so be it. Because without this message of the true good news of Jesus and what he came to do, we don't, whatever unity we have, it isn't worth it. It isn't worth it. If I came to you this morning, no, not this morning, let's, let's go forward a couple of months. We're getting into good weather. Let's say that I come to you in the heat of July on the Winnipeg streets. It's hot and muggy. And you are thirsty. You've just worked out or something. And I come to you with a tall glass of ice water, pure spring ice water. And you are thirsty and hot and and you, what will you do? You will take that water and thank me and you will drink it down. But if I come to you in the same context and I hand you the water and as I'm handing you the water I say, there's just a little bit of poison in it. It's not much. I mean, for, for the thousands of parts of water in there, there's only one part, a little poison. 
It doesn't matter how much poison's in there. You're not going to drink that water. And that's the same that Paul thought about the message of the, of the truth of God's Word. It doesn't matter how much poison, how much false teaching, how much of the legalism of what I have to do in order to be pleasing to God. It doesn't matter how much is in there. If there's even the smallest trace of it, it's corrupted. It's corrupted. And so Paul rejoiced because there were no additives. They added nothing to my message. It was just the grace of God. Christ plus nothing is the gospel. The second thing that he brought home was the unity of the gospel. It says in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 2, we didn't read it, but it says in there, they, they offered me the right hand of fellowship. They perceived the grace of God in my ministry to the non-Jewish, just as they saw the grace of God in Peter to the Jewish, and, and they offered me the right hand of fellowship. You know, that, that handshake, that first handshake between Peter and Paul, the two, the two heavyweights, right? That must have been so important. There was a lot at stake in this. Was, the, was Jesus going to have two churches on earth? Or was he going to have one? Was the dividing wall of hostility going to be destroyed? Yes. Thank the Lord. It was. And so, the third thing that Paul went home with from Jerusalem was the authentication of the gospel. It's interesting that in verse 10, it says, They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So the, the church, the apostles in Jerusalem did not say, okay, Paul, if you're going to be part of our group, if all those Gentile churches in Syria that you're planning are going to be part of us, you know, you're going to have to do these things. Jump, jump through these. No, it wasn't like that. He just said, and it wasn't a, a rule, it was just a, a recommendation, a, a heart thing. Remember the poor. What, what better way of authenticating the gospel of grace than to remember those who do not have the wherewithal to pay for something themselves, the poor. Because is that not the way we are when God meets us in our poverty of spirit and He says to you, you beggar, you poor person, I am going to furnish you with all that you cannot furnish yourself with in righteousness and holiness and purity. That's what Jesus did. The exchange took place. I got His riches, He got my poverty. And so Paul says... I was so glad that they also said, remember the poor, the authentication of the gospel. And you know something, wherever it is on earth, it should be true that, that the economics do not divide the body of Jesus Christ on earth. That we who are the haves should not look away from the ones who are the have-nots in the body of Christ. And it's not long after when Paul is going to those Gentile churches, and guess what he's doing? He's, he's taking up an offering for the Judean churches that have gone through famine. And the poverty switched. So that's the first thing I wanted to share. The, the, the what did Paul go to Jerusalem with, and what did Paul come home with? And it's looking like a really good picture, right? Until we get to verse 11, the passage that we read this morning. And you'll notice that the scene now changes from Jerusalem to Antioch. Peter has gone on a little trip, and he's gone to Antioch to visit some of these Gentile churches that Paul is talking about. 
And that's the place where they were first called Christians. We were first called Christians in this city of Antioch. And there it is that the two big guns that had shaken hands in the right hand of fellowship have a conflict. And it says in the Scripture that Paul confronted Peter to his face. Because while Peter was there, he ate freely with the Gentile believers. But then when another group from Jerusalem came, they were called the circumcision group. A guy named James was their leader. And when they came to Antioch, all of a sudden, Peter, it says, withdrew. And he wouldn't wouldn't associate with the Gentiles anymore. He wouldn't eat with them. You see, the law, the dietary laws that are found in the book of Moses stated that there were certain kinds of foods that Jews could not eat, that Gentiles had no problem eating. And many believed that also, therefore, you should not even eat with the Gentiles because that was, that was a compromise on your faith. Sharing the table is not like today. Back in that day, sharing the table was a sign of acceptance and approval. So sharing the table with Gentiles to many Jews was, was thought, thought to be, that was just wrong. And so here is Peter uh, recognizing this wonderful gospel that includes the, the Gentile peoples, eating with them, recognizing the freedom that he had in Christ, no longer bound by the Jewish law. And all of a sudden, when the other group, the legalists, when they come from Jerusalem, what does he do? He draws back. And he eats with his friends. That's where the problem was. Now, I think we should be surprised at this. Why should we be surprised? Well, we should be surprised, first of all, because of what just took place in Jerusalem, right? Paul said, hey, no, everything's good. They added nothing to my message. They accepted Titus. They approved of my ministry to the Gentiles. But what should even surprise us more is what takes place in Acts chapter 10. Now, you know the story, but let me refresh your memory. Acts chapter 10 is before what happened in Galatians chapter 2. Peter is on a little trip. He goes to a city called Joppa on the sea. And while he is there, he is staying at a a place with a guy's name, Simon the Tanner. And he's there, and and in the the midday, he goes up on the roof to have a, of a rest, and he's hungry. He's waiting for lunch to be prepared downstairs. And as he's resting there, he, he, it says in the Scriptures in Acts chapter 10, he falls into a trance, and in that trance he has a vision, and the vision is this entirely huge sheet, a bed sheet, coming down from heaven, and inside the sheet, once it gets down, he sees all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds, many of which are not allowed, Jews not allowed to eat. And he hears a voice in this trance, and and the voice says, Peter, take and eat. You're hungry. And he responds in his vision. He responds by saying, no, Lord, never. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. (laughs) And the voice comes back, and the voice says, do not call unclean what God has declared as clean. Take it and eat. And, and he, he, he's just perplexed at this. 
Now, what he does not know is that the day before this, in another town not far away, about a day's journey, there is a man named Cornelius, a Gentile man named Cornelius, who also has a vision from God. And in the vision, he is told to send for, go to this actual, this same address in Joppa, and ask for a man named Peter, and he will tell you what you need to do. And so, so Cornelius has sent the messengers, and the messengers arrive at Peter's door at the very moment when he's having this trance vision thing. And, and God tells him, go downstairs. There's men coming to your door. Go with them. So Peter goes downstairs. He finds the men. He actually invites them into his home, which was not proper for Jews to do. And the next day they take off. They arrive that evening to the home of Cornelius. When he walks into the door, he sees the entire living room is filled with people just waiting there. And, and they basically say, what do you got to say to us? And they realize, Peter realizes that this is God opening the door of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And he goes on to explain, once he's heard the, the vision of Cornelius, once he shares his vision, he sees that God brought this together, and he knows that this is the truth. He tells them about Jesus Christ. They all believe, they're baptized, and then he has to go back to Jerusalem and explain what's going on. Now, this is what's already happened, and so therefore, it's really hard to understand how it is that Peter could withdraw in Antioch from the Gentile believers. And so Peter is acting in absolute hypocrisy. Now, I want to share with you in chapters 2, 11 to 14, there are five Greek words that I'd like to share with you that have, I think, significant meaning. And so let me just look at them one by one. First of all, the word in verse 11, when it says that Paul opposed, the word opposed, is the word antihistamine. <laughs> hey, anybody have those around the house? Antihistamine. The word is literally anti-against. Histamine is to cause to stand. To cause to stand against. And so we have an antihistamine, we take it because we're having an allergic reaction, and, and, it, and the antihistamine blocks the effects of histamine in our bodies, which causes blood vessels to dilate and gastric secretions to be released by our immune system. And this is the word that is used of what Paul did. Paul was an antihistamine in the early church in this moment. You see, there was a problem here. Peter was having an allergic reaction to the Gentiles. Peter was having an allergic reaction based on his legalism that he had been set free from, but he was having an allergic reaction, and Paul was the one that had to stand against it, and he opposed him, it says. He opposed him to his faith. He had to bust up that mucousy, gastric secretion of legalistic falsehood. <laughs> Let's go with this metaphor a little further. <laughs> hey, word pictures are great. Eh? He confronted him. That's one word. Second word, it says that Paul opposed Peter publicly. And because why? Because he stood condemned. Another word, clearly in the wrong. The word is kategnosko, which means according to knowledge. 
Why did he stand condemned? Because he knew this was wrong. According to Peter's knowledge, remember, he, he was the guy that opened the door to the Gentiles in the first place. And according to his knowledge, Catechonosco, he knew this was wrong. He stood condemned. When you do something that is against your knowledge that God has shown you, you are standing condemned. Your conscience will bug you. God will be the hound of heaven upon you until you get that right. Praise God for that. That's the Holy Spirit sharpening your conscience so that you don't go wandering off in error, whether it's in your error of belief or your error of practice. And so he stood condemned. Third word here in the Scripture is Peter stood condemned. Why? Because he was doing and living contrary to his knowledge. And Paul says he was, he was a hypocrite. He was being a hypocrite. And he separated himself, verse 12, he separated himself. And that word means to set a boundary upon, to limit, to exclude. Why did he do that? Fear. Because he was afraid of the circumcision group. You know, when we, when we set boundaries around ourselves, when we exclude others from our friendships, when we treat certain people a certain way because of fear of somebody else, we are not living according to God's ways. Even Barnabas, it says, was caught up in this. I'm surprised at this. Barnabas was such, his name means son of encouragement. Barnabas, the, the, the church planter with Paul, was caught up on this out of fear. And the fear led to hypocrisy. That's the fourth word. The word hypocrisy is the word for insincerity, the word for play acting. You're, you're acting outwardly, something that you know inwardly you shouldn't be doing. It's not consistent with who you are. The way Peter was acting was not consistent with what he believed or who he was. Folks, he, he, he bowed to the pressure of fear. And you and I, we face fears all week long in different measures, in different ways. And if we let fear lead and guide us, we also will become hypocritical and insincere. And then the final word, another really creative word in the Greek text, it's orthopodusin. Now, orthodontics, ortho is straight, the word straight. So orthodontics have to do with getting your teeth straight. Orthopedics has to do with getting your bones and ligaments straight, your skeletal. And orthopodicine means getting to walk straight. Okay? And it says basically they were not walking straight in alignment with the truth of the gospel, Paul says. And that's why they were hypocritical. They were not walking in alignment with the truth of the gospel. Why? Because of the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. We do not want to communicate a message that says you must become like us if you want to be belong to us. We don't want to communicate that message. And early in the history of the church, we see the matter being resolved. People were being confronted 
And thank the Lord, we see later on in, in Acts chapter 15, when they had the Jerusalem council, it seems that Peter got the message. And Peter's the guy that stands up in the Jerusalem council, and he, he preaches a message, and he says, we ought not to lay a heavy burden on the Gentile church. Praise God. So Paul is a, is a freedom fighter. Paul is this guy that stands up. He's the antihistamine in the, in the early church. He, he will not let anything jam up the gospel of grace. He wants to see the truth of God flow. And, and he, be, he, he, he single-handedly was the resistance movement at this stage of the church. And in Jerusalem, he had to fight for not only the orthodoxy, the truth of, of right belief, but the orthopraxy, the truth of conduct that's right. And, and in, in Antioch, that's what he had to address was Peter believed all the right stuff, but he wasn't acting a right way to the Gentiles. And you and I can do the same. We can believe all the right stuff, but not act in the right way. We can be hypocritical. We do it out of fear. Or we do it out of... I don't know why we do it sometimes. But the, the picture of, of orthodoxy, again, ortho walking, or straight, I mean, orthodoxy, straight belief, and orthopraxy, straight walking. It's like, if this is the, the way I behave and this is the, what I, the way I think, then if I'm thinking this way because God has informed my thinking, then my acting should follow in that same line. I have to be in line with what I believe. And so God, God confronted the early church. So what is it that confronts us? In the early church, it was, it was racism here. It was nationalism. I don't think we face that quite the same way, but what is it that divides us? What are the little legalistic things that divide us? And I'm not saying that there's not a need for different kinds of churches that have different beliefs, but if we believe that in other churches there are really, truly born-again Christians, we should be having fellowship with them. And so the mode of baptism, the way we observe the Lord's Supper, did I ever tell you about the lifter controversy? Back in the Middle Ages in the, in the Presbyterian church, I see someone laughing, they must know about it. The lifter controversy was a group of Presbyterians that disagreed on when the words of instruction that Jesus gave for the Lord's Supper should be uttered before the cup is picked up on the table or while the cup is being lifted to your, your, your mouth. Now, two denominations began over this. They couldn't agree whether that, that, that should be uttered beforehand or, or during the lifter controversy. You can look it up. Now, we can look on the outside of that and say, well, that's ridiculous. But what is ridiculous about what we divide fellowship over? Our version of the Bible, our political persuasion, the role of men and women in the church, the church governance model. Or let's take it down out of the belief system, the orthodoxy. Let's go into the orthopraxy. We also divide fellowship and get legalistic about orthopraxy. How much do we fellowship between blue-collar and white-collar people? How much do we really accept as brother and sister in Christ those who are working class with professional types? And how do we deal with the artsy folk and the sportsy folk? I mean, again, it sounds like artificial, no big deal, but really. And what about the socially upward compared to the socially awkward? I mean, we know that we, we categorize in our brains, or we at least act it out, even if we don't think it through, we act out, and we'll, we'll, we'll connect with the socially 
convenient to us, like us, but we'll avoid socially awkward. When we come to Wednesday's meal, come to the table, I mean, it should, it should be an opportunity to, to, to declare that the likeness of the way we live is secondary to the unity that we have because of Jesus Christ in our lives. Amen? That's the way it ought to be. And we don't have to agree on much except what Paul says. He's, gonna re he's ready to die for this because the grace of Christ that rescues sinners puts us all on the same field. And so, uniting people in Christ is more important instead of dividing people over other matter, matters. I would like to uh, think about uh, one picture more before we conclude today, and it's the picture of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And this came to me this week, and it, it's just kind of been on my mind ever since uh, I, I, I read it on, I think, Wednesday. And um, I want to say this. I think some of you think that Jesus doesn't like you. You're going to say, you know, you know he loves you, but you don't think he likes you. And I, what I mean by that is the fact is that I'm, I'm just saying that because that might be a, the traces of legalism in the faith that you have constructed. And when you say or you feel that Jesus maybe doesn't like you, I want to confront that, and I want to say I think he likes you a lot. In fact, when Jesus humanly was on earth, he was in human form, and how many friends can a human have? You're limited. But when Jesus Christ was resurrected and ascended back into heaven, now from where he is because of his Holy Spirit who lives in every Christian, he has billions of friends, perhaps. And he likes every one of them because he made every one of them and he loves the way, he likes the way certain things fit in your life and how you are, even though you're far from perfect. And... And the reason I connect that with Lazarus was, remember that's the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Right after that, it says that the people that were watching Jesus weep at Lazarus' tomb, it said, see how he loved him. Well, guess that, that word love there is the word more like. It's the word phileo. It's not the word agape. It's the friendship love. Lazarus was Jesus' close friend along with Mary and Martha. See how he loved him. And I think, I think Jesus liked him, really. There was a friendship. And, and I think Jesus likes you too. Not just loves you because he died for you. He, he likes you. You're acceptable to him. He wants to make out of your life a beautiful thing. And I think, I, I picture this thing in, in John 11 when Jesus stands before an empty grave, or a grave. The stone's been rolled away. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And I can picture, it's kind of like the uh, zombie movie or something. I don't know. It's, 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 I, I, picture, I picture Lazarus like this, just coming out. He's bound all these grave clothes. He can't hardly move. And he's coming out. And then when he gets outside the grave... One more thing Jesus says. 
he says to those around him, unbind him and set him free. You see, you've become a Christian. Jesus has called your name. Terry, come forth. Come out of darkness and death, spiritual death, into life. But see, that's only the beginning. That's only the beginning. The grace of Jesus Christ wants to unbind you and set you free. You see, all the legalism, all the rules, all the thinking that Jesus doesn't like you, all that stuff, you got to take that off, folks. Jesus is all about doing that. He's taken off the grave clothes. You're a new person. He wants, you know, just the, the chapter later, we see Lazarus reclining at a table with Jesus, having a meal together. That's what Jesus wants to do. You're not enjoying Jesus the way that you should or could. So let's, let's stand and let's ask the Lord to, to let the grave clothes fall away and let the, the grace of Jesus and the love of God just permeate this room and permeate every heart so that we might really be free. Because if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Lord God, we've just been challenged by your word one more time again. And we just sung these words to you about longing for your presence. And we recognize that it is only you that can move in the way that we're asking for the things that we're asking for. If we want to be free, if we want to be joyful, if we want to experience real life, if we want to experience what it is that you have for us, if we want to know your presence more deeply than we know now, we can't manufacture that. And so we appeal to you. We ask, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would just let things fall away, that you would unbind us, that in our hearts more and more we would want to be unbound so that our path in walking and following you isn't about do's and don'ts and it's less about what we feel like we have to do to earn something. That's all, that's all impossible. But I pray, Lord, that in every heart, in my brothers and sisters in this room, that you'd be unbinding. I feel like you're giving us a glimpse, a new glimpse of what it is to walk without fear, what it is to walk without being afraid of, of not being enough for you, to walk without being afraid of, of not succeeding enough in this world. All of those things are impossible things. You have given us your son, and we can be free. So may we live as freely as is already true for what you've done. You've unbound us positionally, so unbind us, Lord, in our practice. For your glory and for our joy, which is also for your glory. Lord, have your way. Come and fill this room. We're going to sing this one more time. Amen. Have a blessed day, everybody.